0: So our passage of study this morning is going to come from Ezekiel 29 through 32. We're going to read just chapter 29 this morning together. So if you will stand with me as we read this chapter together, just kind of whet our appetites, and you'll have the words of our text on the screen. Let us hear the word of the Lord together. Amen. This is the text of the letter of the prophet. I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong... uh, I'm over in Jeremiah. There we go. That'll come later. All right, here we go. Ezekiel 29. In the 10th year, in the 10th month of the 12th day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, face Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all of Egypt. Speak to him and say, this is what the Lord God says. Look, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great monster lying in the middle of his Nile, who says, my Nile is my own. I made it myself, they say. I will put, I will put hooks in your jaws and I will make the fish of your streams cling to your scales. I will haul you up from the middle of your Nile, and all the fish of your streams will cling to your scales. I will leave you in the desert, and you you and all of your fish, all the fish of your streams, you will fall on the open ground and, and will open up and, and be open up. I'm sorry, be taken away. Sorry. And uh, or gathered for burial. I will. I, I have given you to the wild creatures of the earth and the birds of the sky as food. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt will know that I am the Lord, for they have been a staff made of reed to the house of Israel. When Israel grasped you by the hand, you splintered, tearing all of their shoulders. When you when they leaned on you, you shattered and made all their their hips unsteady. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says: I am going to bring a sword against you, and cut off both man and animal from you. The land of Egypt will be desolate; will be in desolate ruin. Then they will know that I am the Lord, because you because because you said the Nile is my own; I made it. Therefore, I am against you and your against you and, and your Nile. I will turn the land of Egypt into ruins and desolate the waste, like from Migal to Syene. As far as the border of Cush, no human foot will pass through it and no animal foot, no animal foot will pass through it. I will. It will be uninhabited, uninhabited for 40 years. I will make the land of Egypt a desolation among the desolate lands and its cities will be a desolation among the ruined cities for 40 years. I will disperse the Egyptians among the nations and scare them throughout the lands. For this is what the Lord God says, at the end of 40 years, I will gather the Egyptians from the peoples where they are dispersed and I will, I will restore the fortunes of Egypt and bring them back to the land of, of Pathros in the land of their origin. There they will be a lowly kingdom. Egypt will be the lowliest of kingdoms and will never again exalt itself over the nations. I will make them so small they cannot rule over the nations. It will never again be an object of trust for the house of Israel, drawing attention to their iniquity of turning to the Egyptians. Then they will know that I am the Lord God. In the 27th year, in the, 20th, in the first month of the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon made his army labor strenuously against Tyre. Every head was made bald and every shoulder chafed but the but he and his army received no compensation from Tyre for the labor they expended against it therefore this is what the Lord God says i am going to give the land of egypt to king nebuchadnezzar to, of babylon and i will carry off his, and he will carry off its wealth seizing its spoil and taking its plunder this will be his army's compensation i have given him the land of egypt as the pay he he labored for since they worked for me this is the declaration of the lord And in that day, I will cause a horn to sprout for the house of Israel, and I will enable you to speak out among them. Then they will know that I am the Lord God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. A lot we're going to try to cover this morning. and I will do my best to be faithful to what is happening in this text and to help draw out of it the truths that will comfort our, us as his people even in this day. I noted in our prayer that over the past few weeks, Christians, both in America and across the world, seem like we're inundated with discouraging news at virtually every point, right? Almost on a daily basis, we hear things like, oh, corrupt electoral practices perhaps, depending on where you are on that, what your thoughts are on that, it doesn't really matter, we hear it. Bipartisan support for a bill that de- redefines marriage at its very core. We wonder what this will do to religious liberty. So we get all of these things swirling around in our minds. We hear discouraging news from believers in Ukraine and other parts of Eastern Europe as they are suffering due, milita- due to military activities there. This is, this is more than enough to send our hearts into some very dark places, amen? We wonder what is next. So what are we to do with this? What are we to do when the nations rage? Do we shake our fist at them? Do we go to war with them? How do we respond to the daily deluge of reports that remind us that we live that the world we live in is not only a fallen world but one that is deeply at war with God? I think if we pay close enough attention to the text we're going to read today, at least try to cover these four chapters, at least from a high level, what we're going to find is that as we examine this judgment God has against Egypt, we and I will be, our hope will be girded up inside of us because we'll find that we have a God who's not um, apathetic to our and indifferent to our issues. He's the one who will take up our calls. He is the one who will take care of Israel, and He was the one who will take care of true Israel, the church. And so our main idea this morning that I want to remind us of, and you can find it there in your sermon guide if you've got one, is this. God's people need to remember that history, history is built around the kingdom of God. It's a really big point. History is built around the kingdom of God. And even as nations rage... They are nothing more than instruments in God's hands ensuring that the wrong will fail and right will prevail. This is our hope. This is where we stand. This is what we gird our hope in every day. And this is an abiding principle that runs throughout the Scriptures, even into our new covenant moment, that we know that all of history is built around the kingdom of God and that everything else, brothers and sisters, is an instrument, a mere instrument in God's plans to build uh, to, to bring forth his own kingdom, to reveal his own kingdom. And at the end, wrong will fail. Even if it looks like it's prevailing now, it will not. Right will prevail. So if we look at this text, let me just give you kind of a summary of what's happening here. We are in this section in Ezekiel where God is judging the nations. And and, and, our, and our brother last week came to us, Jim, and, and he talked about God's judgment against all these other nations, Tyre and and, and Edom and all these others. And, uh, but then there's one section here that's really an extended section where God just deals with Egypt. And you wonder, why is God picking on Egypt? I mean, is Egypt the real threat in the, in the region at this point? Isn't Babylon the real threat in the region at this point? Well, I guess it depends on which side of the aisle you stand on. Because the way that we keep seeing things unfold in the Scriptures is that Babylon is an instrument in God's hands for this very moment to judge things, judge his own people, but also to judge those other nations around. And one of the nations that was particularly an a stench to God was Egypt. And namely, as we see in this text, and I'll just give you a little context here, Egypt was one of those nations that Israel kept turning to for hope and for help when the big baddies were coming in, right? Especially Babylon. So when Babylon first comes in to, to conquer Jerusalem, he appoints a puppet king. His name is Zedekiah. Well, he thinks he's got Zedekiah in there and under his, under his thumb, but really Zedekiah is not playing for Babylon's purposes. He's going to do what he wants to do. He's not doing it for God either. He's doing it to make him build his own kingdom for himself. And so who does he turn to? He turns to Egypt. Egypt was still a major power in this time, but not as strong as Babylon had become. But they were still a major power in this time. But the problem with Egypt was Egypt, just like all the nations, they, they flex their pride constantly. And if you didn't, if you didn't, if you didn't just like, kind of almost like give them, kind of wax eloquently with them about their pride, they wouldn't have anything to do with you. So they made these promises to you, to these other nations, to protect them, but it'd be little more than political tokenism. And so what we're dealing with here in chapter twenty-nine through thirty-two is God dealing with Egypt's pride and their and their unwillingness to actually care for God's people when he had an opportunity to care for God's people and it was nothing more than political tokenism. God takes those things very seriously. And this isn't a principle that we see throughout the Scripture. As God says, I will end nations in their pride, one. And two, nations that, that, that favor or take care of my people, God will take care of them at least for a temporary time. And so we find in this, in, in these, in this prophecy, these oracles, these four chapters, or seven oracles here. And I'm going to walk through them for the next few minutes, kind of walk through them, help us kind of see what's happening, and then try to draw out some principles and draw out some truths that you and I can think think through. But the first part of the oracle is in chapter 29, what we just read, 1 through 16, is this prophecy against Pharaoh. And in the center of it is verses 6 through 10. I'll read it again. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord. This is what God has in store. He wants Egypt to know I am Lord. Because you have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel, what's a staff of reed? It just a, you know it, they put their weight on it and it crumbled. Israel looked to Egypt for support, and, and, e, and Egypt would pull that support. They pull it out from under them. He says, because you've done this, when they grasped you with the hand and you, you broke and tore all their shoulders, and when you le- and they leaned on you, you broke and made all their loins to shake. Verse eight. Therefore, thus says the Lord God: Behold, I will bring a sword upon you. And I will cut off from you the man and beast. The land of Egypt shall be a desolation and a waste, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Because of this, because you said the Laal is mine, and I made it, therefore, behold, I am against you and against your streams, and I will make the land of Egypt an utter waste and desolation, from Migal to Syene. So what's happening here? As I already noted, Egypt is foolishly, and continues to foolishly believe, that they are the product of their own making. This is mankind's, like, Honestly, it's our most foundational problem that we believe on some level we will be a people of our own making. And every nation has done it, has tried to do it, including the nation that we live in today. We, we foolishly believe that we are a people who can make ourselves ourselves. And God says there is no such thing as making yourself, yourself by yourself. I am your Lord. I am the Lord of all things. Egypt had foolishly taken pride in themselves they claimed dominion over their land, even foolishly believed that the Nile River was them and in, 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 some, in some part their ingenuity, even though that resource was God's resource in creation for them. If they thrive, and in, 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 in those days, nations that thrived, thrived because of rivers. You know, that's how you, that was how you moved from here and there and everywhere, and that's how you moved product and whatnot. And so Egypt benefited from the Nile going through its land. And God says, You think you're prosperous by your own hand? It is is the epitome of wickedness to think that we are people who are self made. And God will have none of it. God will have none of it. But again, as I noted earlier, there's a second reason that's going on here that God is so infuriated with them. They promised support for Israel. But in the end, their support was little more than political tokenism. And you and I know this very well, right? We have whatever side of the aisle you come from, or whatever side, whatever it is, like we have people who, who politically posture and say, we're for you, and we're gonna vote for you, and we're gonna make laws that are your interest, and and yet at the end of the day, we end up with the Respect for Marriage Act. Okay, sorry, I had to go there. So the takeaways for us are very simple, right? And this is not, this is not politics. Okay, I, I want you to know this. This is not about laws that happen in Washington. It's the things that interest God's people because of what God says is true and right and good. So just make sure it is. I, I don't I don't care about politics and elections. It's about what people say is right and good and what nations say is right and good. That's where God's interest is in. And so when Egypt says something is right and good that God says is not right and good, God will have that. He he will, they will come to an end. And when God's people are not, are, are not taken care of by whatever nation we find ourselves in, God will have, his, will have the last say. And that's, so the takeaway is extremely simple here, right? God despises pride. Because pride is, 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 the, is the height of human arrogance, right? It's, but it's the height of, of, of our lack of self-knowledge, of understanding ourselves, And God says, you don't know yourself. You think you know yourself, and I despise your pride. He despised Israel's pride too, remember? We talked about this a few weeks ago. He despised their pride. He despises pride in any package it comes in. And Egypt represented what all the nations have claimed from beginning, from the fall, all the way to our present day. They felt like they had dominion over the earth, that they weren't under the lordship of any god. And God will spew out their arrogance, the Bible says. And he will spew out their hubris. And he will make an example of them in his good timing. There's a second thing, though, that we just want to make sure we say. God judges nations who take advantage of or refuse to bless God's redeemed people. See, friends, our interest is not some geopolitical Christian interest nation, okay? Because God's people live within every conceivable political regime on the face of the planet. So it's not, it's not in Scripture to see it from that vantage point, but it is in Scripture where God does bless those who bless my people. God will bless those who bless His people. God does that. It's just, it's everywhere. And so when you see the church thriving, I can almost be willing to bet you there's a one-to-one ratio of that nation thriving if we see this throughout history. When it respects the right for people to worship the God of the one true living God, then there's going to be a blessing that follows. And God makes this expressly clear. Those who bless His people will be blessed, and those who, will be, those who judge God's people will be judged and brought low. You must, we must be careful not to presume, though, when we say this, that you and I have the right to kind of flex and say, well, see, you need to give us our privilege because we're God's people. Like, God doesn't even call his people to do that. So I don't want to make sure we don't say something here that's not in Scripture. God doesn't call us to go, I'm flexing here. If you don't bless me, then, you know, God's going to smite you. Like, that's not the message of the church. The message of the church is Jesus is King and Lord, and he's got a salvation for all who will believe. So we don't now flex back against the flexed, right, the ones who are flexing. We don't flex back with our own saying, you know, God's got our back. Well, of course he's got our back. He doesn't come in here, and we say we need we need all these things so that we make sure that we're blessed and we have all these things ourselves. Nowhere in the Bible does God's people are called to assume our privilege among the nations either. It's really we got to be careful with that. Rather, God has made the world, and they can see through 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 natural revelation. There's wisdom and insight for the nations when they do things. According to how God has designed things, and they can see this. Even though in Romans one, they can see it, but they reject it. They're still going to be held on accountable for it. And when we see Romans thirteen, God makes a clear command to the nations, and He, and he says the nations are, the magistrates are there to keep things in good order and right and good. But you've got to remember, even as Paul writes those letters, who is he, who, who is who's ruling the world? A pagan emperor. Who knew nothing of Paul's little letter he was writing to the Romans? And where was Paul, under house arrest? So the the, the idea here isn't so much that Christians go around here kind of flexing our own spiritual muscle, so that we tell nations you've got to bless us. But the reality is we just keep in mind constantly that God's in control of everyone, and that every magistrate that's in place is there by God's own design, and He will get His own purposes out of that, no matter what, and no matter if we understand what that is or not. Friends, that's. So important for us to be reminded of in these days. Because it's noteworthy noteworthy here to think about the context of what we're reading. During this whole engagement with God dealing with the nations, right? Where's Israel? They're in exile. They're not in Jerusalem. They don't have a nation state. They're in exile. Are they playing really any major factor in the geopolitical landscape around them? No. Not at all. They are here by by God's grace, and God protects them. In Babylon, God protects them. God protects them right there. And so that's important for us to remind ourselves as we think about our role in our space here now. There's a second oracle in verses in chapter 30, 17 through 21. I'm sorry, chapter 29, 17 through 21. And it's when Nebuchadnezzar here, it says, is used. As God's instrument to bring down, e- bring down Egypt, and so the, the I will just kind of instead of reading, it, I'll remind us what he it said is it, Nebuchadnezzar has been going against Tyre for thirteen years. Tyre was this extremely wealthy nation, but thirteen years of war will 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 kind of you know erode all the spoils that they would have they would have gotten from Tyre. So they get to the end and they conquer Tyre, but what was what did they get out of it? Nothing. They spent an enormous amount of military expenses in order to take over a land. And they get nothing out of it. And they do all of this, even though they don't see it this way. God says they did this all because I commanded it to be this way. And God says, but that's okay. They did what, they, what I commanded them to do. And what is he going to do? He's going to take the spoils of Egypt and give it to them. This is a really important part of the Scriptures for us to be reminded of. That Babylon... And every nation is God's instrument to work out his divine purposes, both in the life of Israel as well as among all world powers. And, and it's, just, it's just something that we've got to always center and rest ourselves in. Babylon had been faithful in the task, even at great cost to themselves, and, even, and they didn't even know that they were an instrument of God themselves. They were still happily worshiping their own pagan gods too, friends. They were still instruments, and they were still accomplishing everything God wanted them to accomplish. And God took notice of that, and he blessed them. And that means that sometimes, 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 even wicked nations prosper for a season. But that's it, though. It's just temporary. They will go to a grave. We'll talk about this in our seventh principle. They will go to the grave like all nations, and all their spoils will be left behind. And all the spoils will go to the people God will have for himself at the end of the age. So our takeaways from this second oracle is this, that God uses the nations in the achievement of his agenda, his divine agenda, and he even blesses them temporarily. And it's, and it's arrogant. It, it is arrogance for any nation to think that they have the edge in world domination. See, Babylon thought that, but their, even their rule was short-lived. There was a bigger fish just east of them in Persia who would come in and take over them. And so they played their role, and they played their role perfectly for the time that God had set for them. But it's arrogance when a nation comes in, and they think they have an edge in in, in world domination. It's it's hubris, and it it, it does not honor God. It's short-sighted, though, for God's people in churches existing in every political situation to think that God has them has us here to overthrow those powers. Two, I said it a minute ago, well, it's not our job. Daniel had no interest in overthrowing Babylon when he was taken away. He played according to the rules, except for where it wouldn't honor God. And he petitioned for his right to go and worship his God, and God honored him for that. And when these people tried to to, to, to prevent that, God judged them. And when Nebuchadnezzar honored God, God and Nebuchadnezzar flourished. And when Nebuchadnezzar didn't, God tore him down and entered Xerxes from Persia. They're just instruments. And so you and I have got to remember our place in all this. I've heard some people reference verses like Romans 16, 20, and they'll say, well, God's put the nations under our feet. You've probably heard a lot of this lately, right? Yes and no. That there's something that we don't quite see in this. In fact, I'll just go there just for a moment because I think it's a point worth making here before we move on. Romans 16, i we'll gonna try to find it here quickly. I didn't have it marked in my Bible, but we'll get there anyway. In verse 20, I'm actually going to back up to verse 17 Here's Paul's words to the church. Now, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you have learned. Avoid them, because such people do not deserve our Lord Jesus, our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. Verse 19. The report of your obedience has reached everyone. Therefore, I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and yet innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. What is Paul saying there? He's not, he's not giving a command to go crush the nations under our feet. He's telling us the reality of what is going to transpire in Jesus Christ, as the Lord of all all things. And God's people sit tight, rest, trust in Jesus, keep being faithful witnesses in our moment, and God's got everything under control. This is simply a promise of God's people who suffer under pagan governments. Again, Paul wrote this in the light of the pagan king. He wrote this from house arrest in Rome. It's a reminder to us that many of us will rise up. Um, many will rise up with smooth words in the church and distract us from the pure doctrine of the gospel because we are uncomfortable with our present circumstances. I'm uncomfortable in our present circumstances, friends, just like you are. But in that moment, I don't need new smooth talking to tell me about what my new mission is as God's people. Rather, I need to be reminded of the mission that has never changed from beginning of time to the end of time, which is God's got this, I'm his people, he's made a covenant with me as one of his people, and I can rest in that until Jesus returns. So important for us, guys. Because I don't know if you know this or not, but people are really wound well tight these days don't need to be wound tight. Our theology isn't just a mere triumphalistic kind of cultural mission. It's a rest in Christ who has got it all. We don't take isolated verses like Romans 16 20 and construct some kind of new mission for the church. It's just not there. It's just not there. Third oracle. Ezekiel 31 through 19, this is a lament for Egypt. And, and it is telling us about the day of the Lord that has come upon them and, and will terrorize the nations. I'll just read a portion of it, verses 3 through 5, so that we can kind of keep our time near. You can read the rest on your own. But Ezekiel 30, verse 3, For the day is near, it says, the day of the Lord is near, and it will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. A sword shall come upon Egypt, and anguish shall be in Cush, which is... Ethiopia, and when the slain fall in Egypt and her wealth is carried away and her foundations are torn down, Cush and Put and Lud and all of Arabia and Libya and the people of the land that is in league shall fall with them by the sword. So Egypt and all of those who support what Egypt's about are going to fall. All of them on the day of the Lord. This word day of the Lord is an important thing because it runs throughout Scripture. It represents the day when God reveals everything. And the day of the Lord is kind of has an already but not yet reality. We live in the day of the Lord now, but yet there was the day, the first of the Advent when Christ came. And there's going to be the second Advent when Christ returns. So there's a day of the Lord now, but there's a day of the Lord that is yet to come. And and, and this this is what the Scriptures keep reminding us. In fact, at the end of chapter 29, he says, In that day I will raise up a horn that will sprout in the house of Israel. Well, we've heard this somewhere before, haven't we? Doesn't Isaiah say about the horn that we rise up and he'll be our horn of salvation? This is what God is pointing to. He's pointing to Christ. He's pointing to Christ here. And he says, it's Christ who will put an end to these wicked nations. When Babylon first took over Jerusalem, again, I said it earlier, he had appointed Zedekiah as his king, and Zedekiah was playing his own game behind the scenes, and he turned to Egypt, and Egypt failed him miserably, and so miserably that Nebel was like, okay, I was gentle with you the first go-around when I came into Jerusalem. Now it's on. And when he comes in, he wipes out the entire city. and destroys. And, and we haven't gotten there yet in this text, but he destroys the temple as well. And all of this was to point Israel back to one fundamental truth, and it's a truth that even the church needs to hang on to today. Egypt's not your hope the nations aren't our hope and when we lean on them they're going to be like broken reeds and they will will fall and crush under our weight God says "No, you need to to lean on me That's that's where your rest is that's where your weight needs to be leaned on that's what faith is faith is leaning is trusting in God and in Christ this is our hope This is the takeaway. The day of the Lord will be as severe and swift for the nations. And so why would we want to put our weight on the nations? If their end is swift and severe, why would we at all want to put our weight on the nations? And we shouldn't. And so when we look at all the headlines, whatever they are, and we look at this kingdom over here, and we look at this political regime over here, and we look at this nation over here, and we say, oh, wow, this looks really bad. Like, we've got this nation doing this, we've got this nation doing that. I mean, this looks really bad, so we've got to make sure that we're taking care of business here. And like, look, there's a place for that, right? But that's not where our hope is. Our hope is not in political alliances. It's in God alone. So God speaking through Ezekiel is reminding them, He's reminding us that our hope is not Egypt and, that, and on that day of the Lord, Egypt will end up in the same place that every other nation will end up in the course of time. In the graveyard. In the graveyard. The day of the Lord will be severe for the nations. I love Daryl Block's comment on this that I've, we found very helpful in our sermon prep this past week. Those who stand in the way of God's plans render themselves enemies of God. Their judgment is their judgment is sure. The fourth, the fourth judgment, verses, chapter 30, verse 20 to 26. This is where God breaks the arm of Egypt. I'll read a portion of it. Ezekiel 30, 22 through 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and will break his arms, both the strong arm and the one that was broken. And I will make the sword fall from his hand. Do you see the picture here? I'm breaking it. When a soldier breaks his arm, he cannot lift his arm. He cannot lift up his sword. He cannot lift up. He cannot go to battle. And I will scatter, verse 23, the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them through the countries. And I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and put my sword in his hand. Whoa. So God uses pagan kings, right? I will put my sword in his hands. I will break the arms of Pharaoh, and I will groan before him, and he will groan before him like a man mortally wounded. Principle is very simple. God breaks the nations. He will break them in their pride. Egypt had been for centuries a formidable world power, and their history is significantly intertwined with Israel. But God is going to bring an end to that. So definitively would be their defeat that they would never again have their world status of power again. We saw that a little while ago. They will be a lowly kingdom, it says. We even see that in our own day to day. What's Egypt today? What's Egypt today? Nothing. They're nothing. And so we see the fear and rise of radical powers in our nation, in our world today. You know, we talk about China, we talk about Russia, we talk about North Korea. And there are concerns about the war decline in Western nations like ours. And we see all this heading, and we, and, and we recognize that all this comes from the same place. And all of them, all of these are going to head to the same place, to the junkyard. The junkyard where history will, has disposed every world power in has gone before us. They're all going to the junkyard. Again, as I said before, do I have concerns? Of course I have concerns. Yes. Do I have? Do you have a duty as a citizen to thwart evil where we can? Of course we do. And that will be mitigated by God's own providence in whatever nation, whatever place we find. As American citizens, we have our own ways we do that here. But God has provided for his people in every time and every place of history, regardless of what those circumstances are. And so we live for righteousness sake. We proclaim righteousness sake wherever we live and we remind God's people of the dangers of of rejecting God's righteous standards and creational standards. But let me just say it this way. God has never needed nor will ever need a Christian militia. Again, where was Israel doing all this? They didn't have an army. Were they provided for? Yes, according to uh, Jeremiah 29, which I earnestly started reading earlier. This was what God tells Jeremiah tells, God tells Jeremiah to tell the people there. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, verse 4, says to all the exiles: I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Who did it? God did it. Build houses. Live in them, plant gardens, eat your produce, find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give, their, give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. and Multiply there, do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord God on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. Jeremiah 29, 1 through 10, or 4 through 10. Now, why was Jeremiah saying this to them? Because there were other prophets, false prophets, who were saying the exact opposite. Don't don't settle in there. Resist everything there. You're going to go back. We're going to reestablish the kingdom. It's all going to be good. And Jeremiah says, no. I've got you there for this season, 40 years, whatever, for now. But this is your season. And I intend for you to thrive there. I intend for you to be good citizens in Babylon. Where is that message today? Be good citizens. Own your home. Take care of it. Raise your children. Educate them. Make them be good citizens for the world. By the way, it's, it's a, little, a, little, a, little, a little data for you. If we continue to have children, things will change. Because the world is not having children anymore. The Christians have more children, so have more children. <laughs> right? Young people, get, you know, get married, have kids. Do this. Get married young. That's okay. Your mom and dad will thank me for that later. All right? But, no, I actually had a parent get mad at me one time uh, when I said that. They're like, no, don't you tell my daughter not to get married too young. You know, she has so much to accomplish. She don't need no man. Okay, well, God says get married and have kids. So that's all right. Um, the, the, the point we're trying to make here is that wherever we find ourselves, right, wherever we find ourselves... It's God who's in control. God will bring an end and God will be the one who does all that he's doing. And we are just to simply live out our existence. And Peter says it himself, live peaceably with all. Preach the gospel, make disciples, live peaceably with all. Fifth oracle, the fall of Pharaoh, 31 through 116. Verse two and three says, son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all your multitude of whom you uh, whom are you like? He says, whom are you like in greatness? In other words, he's asking a question of favor. Who are you like in greatness? Behold, Assyria was a great cedar, great tree in Lebanon. It had beautiful branches and the forest blade and a towering height, and its tops were among the clouds. And it gave shade to many people and great protection to lots of people in Assyria. Verse 10 through 12. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because it towered high and it set its top among the, the clouds and its heart was proud of its heights, I will give it, give it into the hand of the mighty one of the foreign nations and he shall surely deal with it with the, um, as its wickedness deserves. I have cast it out. Foreigners, the most ruthless of nations, have cut it down and left it on the mount, and on the mountains and in all the valleys. Its branches have fallen and its, bow, and, and bow, its bows have been broken in all the ravines of the land. And all the peoples of the earth have gone away from its shadow and left it. So what is God doing here? He's, he's saying to Egypt, you know, I know of another great tree. And it provided well for all the nations. And it found great shade under it. But it was a wicked tree and it got cut down. And so will you be cut down. So will you be cut down. God is reminding his people to through Ezekiel in this moment as he's prophesying that Israel's arrogance makes them look like a fruitful tree in which to find tree and find shade. This is exactly what Israel did. They tried to look to Israel for shade. And God compares them to the same shade in Israel, in Assyria, excuse me, that held out flourishing for all those who sat under it. But ultimately that tree was broken down. Our shade's not in Israel. I mean, I'm sorry, our shade is not in Egypt. It's not in Babylon. It's not in America. It's not in European nations. It's not in any other nation on earth. Our shade's not there. Our shade is in Christ. He's the wing and wind under which we we soar, we find protection. The nations are nothing more, and here's a really big point. The nations are nothing more than fallen trees to be used as mulch in the landscape of God's kingdom. Think about that. Every great tree eventually gets cut down and it will be used as mulch in the landscape of God's kingdom. Just let that sit on you for a moment. That's what we are. This is what happens. And then we go into the sixth and the seventh lament. Lament over Pharaoh. Here we find that the, if you know anything about Israel, you know that one of their primary gods was the crocodile. Right? It, it, and it represented their most feared God. And in verse two through six of chapter thirty-two, son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh king, and say to him, "You consider yourself a lion of the nations, but you are like a dragon in the seas. That dragon of the seas is like the, the crocodile, and you burst forth in your rivers and trouble the waters with your feet and foul their rivers. Thus says the Lord God, I will throw a net over you with a host of many peoples, and they will haul you up like by the drag net, and I will cast you on the ground and on the open field. I will fling you, and I will cause all the birds of the heavens to settle on you, and." I and I will gorge the beasts of the whole earth with you. I will strew your flesh upon the mountains and fill the valleys with your carcass. This is a very violent text. He'll open you. He's going, to, he's going to ravage them. And so this imagery here was to say, you think you're a great nation. You think you're a great crocodile. You think you're a great, you're a great God, but I will destroy you. I will destroy you. What God says... About their destiny is disturbing, I know. But we must remember that what we're f- pointing to is this final downfall of Egypt by the providential hands of God due to their unceasing pride. And remember, the same thing came to Nebuchadnezzar too, right? This isn't just Egypt. This is all nations. In Daniel's time, we talk about, and he went mad, he went crazy, he was like an animal. God was taking him and humbling him too. He broke him down and humiliated him in his hubris and he, like he does all nations. Pride of the nations will be, our down, will be their downfall. We just sit back and we rest and we trust God. I, I've got a great quote from my friend, Joe Stegall, Providence, pastor at Providence. And only a man from Pine Log, Georgia can say this, okay? And it, so it just bears worth repeating. What Egypt thought was they were hot snot on a silver platter. But they ain't nothing but a cold booger on a paper plate. I told him I said, I'm gonna say it then I'm gonna give you credit for it in case I get in trouble for it. <laughs> but it's true, right? Every nation thinks they're this, but they're nothing more than they're, they're, they're only as strong as the Lord allows them to be. What's happening? The nations have an ultimate destination. And it's hell. And that's that seventh and final oracle. Ezekiel 32, 2 through 6. Paints the picture of a slain of God, slaying Egypt and laying them into the graveyard. And here's what's wonderful about this graveyard. I'll let you read it for yourself. But here's what it says: Egypt is delivered to the sword, drag her away, and all of her multitudes. The mighty chiefs shall speak of them with their helpers out in the midst of Sheol, and they will come down. They will lie still, the uncircumcised slain by the sword. Now, the uncircumcised represent all the nations who are not in Christ, because they don't have that mark of covenant mark. They're slain by the sword, and here's what it says in verse 22: Assyria's there. Verse 24: Elam's there. Verse 26: Verse 26: Meshach, Tubal's there. 29: Edom's there. And on Sidonians are there, and they're all labeled under the same rubric: the uncircumcised slain by the sword. Every nation will share in the end the same graveyard. Every nation will do it. Now, I know I went long, but I do think it's important to kind of then try to sum up everything we've said here under two abiding principles that can hang with us even to this day. And some of it's going to be a little bit of a repetition of what I said last, uh, over the last few minutes, but I think it's worth saying that these two abiding principles can help us. Number one, and I've said it already, history is built around the kingdom of God. Don't forget that. History is built around the kingdom of God. Derek Thomas, Scottish Presbyterian, Pastor says this: the key to understanding all of history is the kingdom of God. The key to understanding history is the kingdom of God. Remember, once again, the nations are nothing more than fallen trees to be mulched in the landscape of the kingdom of God. They're instruments in God's hands, and that's it. God's people must beware of trusting in broken reeds in this moment and trust in the Lord God and Him alone. Second abiding principle. Now said it in the in the main point. Wrong shall fail and right will prevail. Wrong shall fail and right will prevail. Again, Derek Thomas notes something and we saw in chapter 29 when God says, I am against you, the Lord, thus says the Lord God. It is a fearful thing to have the Lord God say, I am against you. And here's what Derek Thomas says in his commentary. There can be no, no more terrifying words than these. This is what the sovereign Lord God says, I am against you. When the psalmist sought for the ultimate expression of his assurance, he put it in these terms, God is for me, Psalm 13. Paul picked up those words and drew an obvious conclusion that we find in Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the ultimate truth that we must Remember, God is for us. And it is a dreadful thing for God to be against anyone. And so that should remind us the importance of evangelism, amen? We do not want to see our unbelieving neighbors experience this. Preach the gospel to them. Show them the saving, proclaim the saving message of Jesus to them wherever you go. It reminds us that we have a mission that admission we find in, in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven has been given to me, Jesus says. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. By, by the way, as ponte ethne, all peoples and people groups, not nation states, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you and lo, I will be with you until the end of the age. Our task is simple. It's word and sacrament. Preach the gospel, make disciples wherever we go. This is what we are called to do. We you do it in season and out of season, no matter what circumstances we face. We also must be reminded in this that we have an identity in this present moment. And it's an identity we must embrace and it's an uncomfortable identity we must embrace. It's a pilgrim identity. We talked about it in Daniel. We talked about it in our study in 1 Peter. And we see it again here in in Ezekiel. Pilgrims that that live in a land that's not our home. Our mission, preach the gospel, but we're we're gospel preaching pilgrims. How fitting is that thinking about Thanksgiving, huh? We're pilgrims. We're, we're, we're in a home. It's not our home. But we preach the gospel. And again, that's Jeremiah 29, what we just mentioned a little while ago, right? Build houses, get married, have kids, seek the prosperity of the city and the flourishing in it. Wherever you are found, wherever God's people are found, this should be our witness. This should be our testimony. Right? Preach the gospel. Participate in the means of the grace within the church. Give witness to God's commands and ways everywhere we go. Seek the welfare of the city. But never, never, never substitute our mission for cultural transformation. Rather, we preach the gospel to the nations and we thwart the culture that way. We thwart the culture by making disciples. We thwart everything by preaching, by raising up children who know Jesus and want to live for Jesus. That's how you thwart it and nothing else. That's how we do it, because God has raised up a horn of authority. We have trust in this, right? This is what it said at the end of chapter 29, verse 21. And in that day, I will raise up a horn, and he'll be a great authority. It's pointing to Jesus, our horn of salvation, our horn of authority. This is our hope, and this is our hope alone. So as we come to the Lord's table this morning, that is our hope. That's what we share in. May God's people be ever restful in that. Ever restful in that. And and by our participation in this table and our participation with one another, may we ever be restful in the message of the gospel wherever we go.